0: Straight out of Austin, Texas, it's On Second Thought, powered by hook'em.com, with your hosts, statesman sports columnists, Cedric Golden and Kirk Bowles. Often imitated, never duplicated. Hear it here first,
1: On Second Thought.
0: On Second Thought, episode 319, brought to you by Hook'em.com, our good friends at Bud Light, Cedric Golden here with the Duck, Kirk Bowles, and man, it's bowl season coming up, and we needed to talk to somebody who's played in quite a few bowls and knows a little bit about this game. Oklahoma legend Dusty Dvorak joins us. You can see him on ESPN and ABC with friends of the podcast, DePage Tom Luganbill. And he's also on serious College Sports Radio with Gabe Eichhardt. I was on that show, Doug. They were slumming this week, but I was glad to <laughs> be on there. Dusty, what's up?
1: What's up, guys? How are we doing? What a uh, what a year. Always great to talk with both of you guys. I, I'm guessing you want to reach out to me because I'm part of the national Texas broadcast team, right? You- we have four. How many? Four. Four Texas games I believe all on ABC, three of those were ABC primetime. So, uh, what what a year it's been for Texas. And I'll tell you what, I said this. We had them the first game against Baylor. And I walked – I think I might have said it on the broadcast And I felt this way all year. This is a team that's built and constructed that can win a national championship. Now, you got to go out there and earn it. You got to go out there and go on the field. But, boy, what a season. uh, What a bounce back. And I think we can put the question – Tibet, Texas is most certainly back, ladies
2: and gentlemen. Uh, That's dangerous. That's dangerous. (laughs) Be careful. (laughs) Uh, I don't know how many – you did a lot of late games with the Longhorns too, didn't you? Three of
1: them. Yeah, I think three were ABC Prime, that that, uh, Baylor game, TCU, and then the Black Friday game against Texas Tech. The only one that was midday was BYU. I think that was a 230 Mm-hmm. ABC. Yeah. So um but yeah, I as uh I think the uh the Horns 4 0 uh with Dave Patch, Tom Luganville, myself on the let's call. No,
2: let's there go. There you
1: go. Maybe maybe we're maybe we're a good luck charm uh for yeah. Sark. I don't know. he it's it's all serious, don't be, bragging. So, man, don't,
2: don't be he, bragging about that Norman though. You better be
1: careful. Well, this is only gonna be seen by people in Texas, right? There's no way any Oklahoma right. people no, can see this out. No, exactly. hey, if they want a night, night, I still got hey man. I still got my Bob Stoops bobble. There hat. you go. The vibe. I should at least keep me in the good graces of the folks here in the state of Oklahoma. Oh, yeah.
2: There you go. There you go. Well, you started out with Texas, Texas number three. Were you surprised they were number three? And does that suggest to you that they were definitely in once they won the Big 12 title?
1: It did not surprise me. Um, you know, I never thought for me that, that – Alabama could jump them. Like, I didn't care what happened. Like, to me, the games on the field have to matter. Right. I don't care if it was week one, that game was week two. I kept hearing a lot of people say, well, this is a different Alabama team. I had Alabama this year, too. They're a really good football team, but Texas beat them in their backyard by 10 points. And then, if you remember the way they finished that game, I mean, they 35. ate that for the last five, six minutes, and then, seven, it out. yeah. Could have been worse. I thought the way Texas dominated the line of scrimmage, I think that that was just so impactful for me. And so I would have always had Texas ahead of Alabama. You know, I don't want to turn this into this conversation, but personally, I would have had Florida State in. To uh, talk about it. To put, well, you want to put Florida State at three, Texas at four, uh, you know, Texas at three, Florida State at four. I, I don't care. I thought they deserved a chance to continue to play. Uh, I understand the tough spot the committee was in. And this is the first time I thought the committee, it's interesting, the 10th and final year of the fourteen playoff was the first time they are really put in this tough predicament. Yes. Uh, for me, they got it wrong. Now, do I think Alabama can win a national championship? I do. I think all four of these teams can. But for Texas, they deserve to be in. They're without question one of the best four teams in college football this season. And I thought that, that given the fact that they weren't going to put Florida State. And I thought it was easy to slide Texas in at that three spot. Well,
0: let's talk about the inization of this process. Was there ever a chance that no SEC team would be in the CFP, and and would would and would the world have ended if <laughs> Alabama was left out, and it was it was Michigan, Washington, Texas,
1: and Florida State? The world would have kept spinning, uh, but there would have been a lot of people down the southeast that were very upset, and you could feel it coming. Like it felt like the politicking was starting with this with this realization that Alabama could beat Georgia, and that oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What are we going to do? I mean, when when Greg Sankey, who I think, is the most powerful man in college sports. I think he's, I Agreed. mean. I'm excited for Oklahoma and Texas that that's going to be their commissioner. I mean, I think the guy is as sharp as they come and he's who I would want leading my conference, but it was clearly by design, what he did on game day Saturday, right guys? I mean, he's no fool. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knew exactly what could could happen. So he was going to get out in front of it uh, and and make the statements that he made What the Sesame street reference. uh, (laughs) This just looks different than everything else. And I think we'd all agree the SEC has been the dominant conference in college football, uh, you know, well before this college football playoff, the the numbers and the championships bear it out draft picks. uh, I think another aspect of that, but the college football world still would have been spinning if they hadn't made it. I think it is a fair question to ask, would the committee allow it? You know, would they, would they have not put in an SEC team? I think it's pretty clear. No, like if Jordan Travis is fully healthy, I'm still not convinced they don't do the exact same thing they just did. I know that. I don't know. That, wow. I, don't know. I said I'm not convinced. I'm not that saying been that crazy. Been. I think that was an easy I think that was a, an easy scapegoat, an a easy cop out.
0: nice cop out. Yes. Yes.
1: And that was that was an easy way for them to say, right. "Oh, you know, they're not the same team." You're right. Um, but I mean, I, I don't know. Like I I got to be honest. When I went to bed Saturday night, I thought they were getting left out. I thought they were. You did. You did. Um, so I was surprised. I was not shocked. And, yeah. and and the more you look at it, the more you think about it, you do have to kind of wonder, Would, would regardless of what happened, is there any scenario that the SEC would have gotten left out? And I, I don't know the answer, but it feels like – that league has garnered so much respect from so many people, including the committee, that it was going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for them to leave someone out. And I think, given the fact that Texas beat Alabama on their field, I, I don't, I, again, I don't know exactly how it plays out, but uh, it, it seems to me like the SEC was getting in no matter what.
2: <laughs> well, I'm on the other side of the table. I think Florida State should have been left out just because they're no longer one of the four best without Jordan Travis. Why, why do you who say did? that, though? How do you know? Because we saw it for two games, Dusty. Well, well you, you know. saw it for one, though. You saw it for one. Baker didn't look good either. Well, you saw it for one, though. I mean, think about this. Think about
1: um, the fact that – because that was, what was interesting is a lot of committee members were referencing a Louisville game. Right.
0: That's just one game.
1: Well, that well, that quarterback wasn't gonna play. The, well, quarterback was going to play you, the quarterback who was gonna play for you. The quarterback gonna play for you played against Florida on the road in the swamp with one week of preparation. How do we know what Tate Rodemaker looks like with an entire month of preparation? I know this. That Florida State defense looked like it was gonna give anybody all kinds of problems. They were good. They were scary. They were did, scary. did the Michigan offense look great against Iowa? I know. It was, is that scaring anybody? Do Did the we Alabama offense look great against Auburn? I, I mean it was it was the Milro miracle uh uh-huh. on, on you know fourth and goal from the 31. I what I don't like is like okay, how about we'll go to the NFL? 2017 Philadelphia Eagles. Would anybody and I believe Nick Foles an Austin native, uh, if yeah, they yep. would anybody in their wildest dreams thought that Nick Foles could take the Philadelphia Eagles? To a Super Bowl, my man Lane Johnson wore a dog mask because everybody told him they couldn't win. Right, that was their mantra. They were the underdogs. Nick Foles against Tom Brady, pff, no his shot.
0: Dad, his dad, his dad believed it, and he got mad and hung up on Kirk because Kirk, uh, Kirk uh, picked uh, Tom Brady to be Nick, Nick Foles. You know what Kirk? You know what Kirk
1: probably said back then. There's no way the Eagles can win a Super Bowl. There's <laughs> no way the Eagles are one of the best teams without Carson Wentz. Yeah. I, I just I, I what I, again? And I don't know. I, none of us know, right. none of us will know. What I don't like is that we, you know, Vegas told us. I, I was one of them. Oregon's going to beat Washington second time around. No, they're going to beat them. They're going to beat them by double digits. Well, that's not what happened. We think we know a lot. What was the yeah. spread? What was the spread for Texas down in Tuscaloosa? We were all told. I mean, Texas even last year in Austin that was a 21 point spread in a game yeah. that Texas I thought outplayed oh. Alabama in Austin with Bryce Young at quarterback. Yeah. And oh, by the way, I'm pretty sure uh, what uh, Hudson Card had to come in because Quinn Ewers got hurt. I Texas outplayed them, but yeah. but Vegas told us that was a 21 point game. This there year was it was over a touchdown. They got no shot. They beat them by 10. I would, ju- I just, one thing I love about sports is that we don't know. Mm-hmm. We, don't. we don't know. And all of this, kind of like the weather, is a guess, right? We're trying to put together yeah. what we believe, what we think, all these factors. We're wrong all the time, guys. Like our yeah. great meteorologists, we're wrong. And the fact that nobody beat Florida State, mm-hmm. the fact that, that nobody was able to get them. I just I have a hard time. I don't like a system that if you go undefeated in a power five, you don't have a chance to make someone beat you. Um, but the, here we are. And the great silver lining about all this is that we get a 12 team playoff next year, and there'll be oh. five automatic qualifiers. And so if you win, if you win yeah. a a power four conference, is what it'll be next year. You win that. And yeah. whether you go undefeated or not, you get a chance to keep playing, you get a chance. To play for a national championship, so sorry, Kirk, I wasn't trying to. No. I just, I just hate how we say. Well, they weren't one of the best four. Says who? Us that are wrong all the time. And Kirk's hey, always wrong. I was,
2: Kirk's I was watching that. Florida State, Louisville. My eyes hurt. It was like I was watching an Iowa versus Iowa spring game. It's like, can anybody do anything on? Now you're a defensive guy. I was gonna so say,
0: you, you know, you're talking to
1: here. You're talking. I know. About who I
2: that Louisville offense, though, has been really
1: good. But I mean, I, I watched that Louisville offense beat up on old Notre Dame. I watched yeah. them run the ball right down their throat. And they Over. did nothing. They did nothing on that Florida State defense. The other thing, too, about Florida State, how many pros are on that team? We talk about that about them like they're, you know, yeah. like a group of five. Jared Verse, a big-time player. Peyton uh, Fisk, a big-time player up front. Keon mm-hmm. Colvin, I, I outside of Marvin Harrison Jr., I don't know if he's not the second-best receiver in the country. I mean, they got an NFL player at tight end. Trey Benson is an NFL player. Like they got pros all over that roster. So I look, it's a moot point at, at, at now. I mean, the four teams are set. I love the matchups. I can't wait. But I, I just I would caution any of us to speak definitively about yeah. who best is. And one more thing about best. Like what yeah. what what what's best? Is it based off what we think? Or is yeah. it based off of to me, part of best has to be resume, right? Has sure. to be what you've done in the field, and I do believe strength of record. Yeah, did have Florida State three, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that their strength of record was actually higher than Bama's and Texas. So I guess you it kind is, of think about
2: and they they said strength said, of no was, that? their strength of schedule was 55, and Alabama's was five. Right, and they
0: punked Louisville. I mean, they punked LSU though,
2: punked them. Yeah, they, oh, they just throttled him. There's no question about that. With Jordan Travis. I'm,
1: I, I was about to say, I was waiting for <laughs> Kirk to jump in and say with Jordan Travis.
2: Hey, uh, You're too but, young. You should Google Kenyon Martin. I, I wrote in my nine things about him. You probably uh, never heard of him. Come but, on. But, are you kidding me? I
1: was you're watching, I was watching NCAA basketball when that happened. I absolutely remember. It what he, happened? When he hurt his leg, man, he had that nasty – Uh, Broke his leg. leg, uh, Was in the was in the conference tournament game, if memory serves. Yes. And they were the best team. Was Cincinnati? Uh, Yeah. Is that old Huggy Bear? Was he the coach at
2: Cincinnati at the time? I don't know if he was still there or not, but they docked him a a seed. They went from a one seed to a two seed and lost to Tulsa in the second round. But think about this,
1: though. At least in that scenario, you still get a chance to play for a championship, right? Uh, That's true. It, It was. I mean, it's not like they removed them from the tournament. So we should go to 68 football team playoff, right? No, we should not. Twelve. <laughs> Twelve is gonna be a nice place to settle. But hey, and look, and I and I respect the the spot that those committee members were in. That could not have been easy. And I think uh, you know, my my former good friend, uh man, we all miss him, Mike Leach, he said it best years back. Uh, yeah. you know, he called it out when he was at Washington State. Uh, whenever we mm-hmm. talked about, we got five power five conferences and four spots. This <laughs> is essentially set up for disaster. And again, I think one of the crazy parts is that we made it 10 years before we got to where it was so highly debated, so highly contested, and truly a deserving team was going to be left out in the cold. I would have loved for the
0: 12-teamer to start this year. This was a perfect year because there's not one definitive great team any. There's there are maybe eight or nine teams in the country that could win a national championship this year, but only four yeah. are going to get a chance at it. Uh, let's talk about Washington, thirteen and zero Longhorns, twelve and one at the Sugar Bowl, New Year's Day. Um, you've seen more Texas football than most national guys, um, and and we all know what Michael Penix can do. Um, where are you leaning?
1: I like Texas. You know, I was asked this, and we'll see. I got a ways before I'll make my official pick. But I was I was asked um, you know, this morning who I like the most right now. I think I trust Texas more than the other team. I think all four of these teams could win it. And I think that you know Vegas kind of reflects that. But I think Texas is the most complete team. I think Texas is finally going to be at its healthiest at season's end. I mean, think about. The injury bug Texas had in its secondary, its quarterback, its running back room, which you're not going to get Jonathan Brooks back, but they've weathered a lot of storms. Xavier Worthy, Jatavion Sanders, been banged up, kind of in and out of the lineup. They're going to be whole. They're going to be complete. And I think that, you know, the way they finished the season against Tech and then Oklahoma State, putting that exclamation point at the end of the year, after they had – well, you had three out of four games where you had a 20-plus point lead that those games got very iffy. They learned at the end of the year how to put their foot on an opponent's throat. And I think that goes a long way. And all, all these four teams are great. They've got good cultures. But I'm really buying what Sark's selling with this culture. I think that they've got a great blend of of young talent and, and veteran talent, but more of a veteran, I think, course-hardened presence that have been through a five-and-seven season, that have fought through the fire. You got guys like Jordan Whittington that I think is kind of that backbone of this team, a guy like Tavondre Sweat, who finally learned how to play at a high level consistently where he hadn't been able to do that previously. I think there's complete buy-in, and I'm leaning Texas in this game, and I'm leaning Texas, if you're asking me right now, as we sit a month away from the national title, I would say they're my favorite uh, to win it all and bring home a national championship to the 40 acres for the first time since 05. It's not going to be easy, but I do think they have the ingredients that you look for, and it starts with those dudes in the middle. I mean, Byron Murphy and Tavondre Sweat, I've said it many a times, if you listen to the telecast, oh, yeah. it's the seed tackle combination in college football. And I, I actually think Byron Murphy is underrated. He yeah. is. <laughs> Because next two. Yeah. I think Tavandre Sweat is phenomenal. And, you know, he's 6'4, he's 362, and you can't move him. And, I mean, is Call me crazy. I say Byron Murphy for me is going to have the better pro career. Because yeah, Byron Murphy. That is a big statement. Wow. Byron Murphy, wow. His, his lateral quickness, his strength, watch him sit on double teams. He plays with great leverage. He sheds blocks as well as anybody, and he is an excellent interior pass rusher. Like I, and I think he's just scratching the surface of what he's capable of. I'll be intrigued with the draft to see who goes higher. Don't be shocked if Byron Murphy actually goes higher than Devondre Sweat. I'm not saying it's a guarantee, but it will not surprise me at all. But when you start with that as your as your center, okay. It is it is tough to it is tough to get effective offense going because what those two guys do, they command double teams, they command your attention, they negate the ability to run the football, and they both push the pocket and can rush the passer from the inside so well. And when you can get that kind of productivity from multiple D tackles, you can have great success. You saw it with Sean Rogers and Casey Hampton. I like to think we had a pretty good duo with Tommy Harris and some other guy who played yeah. next to him at Oklahoma. Big Teddy back there and linebacker. Come on now. And, and Jalen Ford and Anthony Hill. But yeah. these guys clean up their jobs so much. And when you look at this matchup with Washington, everyone's going to get so focused on Pennix and Adunze and, and, and Polk and these receivers Go look at the win against USC. I say go look at the win against Oregon. Dylan Johnson and their ability to run the football were the difference in those games. I think Michael Penix is great, and they can throw it all over the yard. And the Texas secondary is what's been gotten. But oh, yeah. I think right. what, what makes Washington, Michigan, what makes Alabama, you know, you know teams that can win a championship is their ability to run the ball. I think Dylan Johnson, all those teams are going to have – Uh, You know, real issues and problems run the football on this Texas front. So uh, I I think that's the matchup that I look at. If Washington can have success somehow, something that not many people have been able to do, run the football at Dylan Johnson, I could see Washington winning. If they can't and they solely have to rely on Michael Penix, I think it sets up well for Coach Kukowski in that defense.
2: It's such a luxury having that rush defense. I mean, just ask Ollie Gordon the second. You know, 34 yards, number one running back in the nation. Hodge Brooks. Hodge Brooks. I think, I think, Dusty, it's like seven games where the opposing running back had 46 yards or less. That's, that's how dominant. And you know what a luxury that is for a defensive coordinator to have that. So. Well,
1: and, and even Oklahoma, you know, the one loss, it was Dylan Gabriel. You know, it was a quarterback run. They got it. Was. It, it wasn't was. hand the football off and pound the rock, right? It was quarterback run game, which I don't think you're going to have to worry about too much with Michael Penix. You know, he wants to beat you with his arm. He wants to beat you from the pocket. That's kind of where, you know, he can really be a weapon. So, I think from that aspect, you know, really, I think McCarthy's got good mobility, obviously Milrow, but I think this matchup actually sets up pretty well for Texas from that standpoint. I'll tell you, though, one thing that has impressed me, Washington's defense, I was suspect on them early, I thought they really Mm -hmm. stepped up down the stretch. You saw the game in Corvallis against Oregon State. They stepped up. Even the win against Arizona State, where Washington didn't have an offensive touchdown. For as great as Michael Penix has been, he was not in that game. Their one touchdown was at pick six. And that was kind of the difference in that ball game in the fourth quarter. So I, I do think Washington's defense has really taken a step forward. They got a really good pass rush, which Texas, as good as I want to say that offensive line, is they've struggled at times. Yeah. Protect the passer a little bit and you gotta keep uh Quinn Ewers clean. Uh, but but that's that'll be an interesting matchup from that side of things because Washington, I think, is one of the, you know, last three or four games, one of the more improved defensive units. And I didn't think they had that in them early in the season, but they showed to be uh much, much better down the stretch, which so did Texas offense. I mean, mm-hmm. season highs in just about everything to close out the season. Uh, both against Texas Tech and then clearly against Oklahoma State. They're they're firing all cylinders at the right time.
2: You mentioned uh, the draft. Uh, Everybody's wondering about Quinn Ewers. He's not said. uh, Most people think he's leaning toward coming back with, you know, the glut of great quarterbacks out there. Uh, If you were his advisor, Dusty, would you tell Quinn, you know, you've been hurt two years, you got 21 starts, A lot of you know, Drake Mays and Caleb Williams out there, Bo Nix picks. Would you say, yeah, you ought to come back for another year?
1: Don't forget Jaden Daniels. Uh, I'd throw him in that on that list as well. Definitely, that's my guy. Uh Let's see how he does against Washington and then maybe in a national title game, right? You know, I I think that the if you're asking me based off of right now, first I would tell him as his advisor, what's the NFL tell you? You know, what (laughs) what are your grades back from them? Um. And I would also ask him, what's your goal? Do you want to be a top 10 pick? Is, is that is that your goal deep down? Do you want to be a first-round pick? Do you just want to get to the NFL? What do you want? I mean, yeah. he's going to play in the National Football League. Yeah, um, at- I, don't, I don't think he'll be one of the top two quarterbacks taken. If that's ultimately his goal, mm-hmm. to be a top two quarterback in the draft, i tell him to come back. I don't think he goes ahead of Caleb Williams. Personally, I've had quite a few North Carolina games over the last couple of years. I don't think right now – He goes in front of Drake May. So, you know, what do you want, Quinn? That would be my question to him before I would offer any advisement. And then what's the NFL telling you? Um, If he goes out and outshines Michael Penix and he goes out and whether it's – and they win and whether it's Michigan or Alabama, he puts on a show and, you know, he's he's dropping dimes and throwing darts all over the place and his stock is – is apex that he's a, he's a top 10 to top 15 pick. It's tough for me to advise anybody not to go when you have that opportunity. I think though, given where college football is and interesting what we saw yesterday from Charlie Baker, we, we've known with NIL college football is changing. Um, You know, he can still get paid and and do very well in college as he's done already. So if you're going to be a second round pick, I mean, you tell me what's more beneficial. Is it to go be a second-round pick where you can come back to college, continue to develop with one of the great quarterback developers and Steve Sarkeesian and, and make another run as a Texas quarterback and probably make pretty comparable money doing that and then maybe really up your draft stock? That would make more sense to me. I think the, the reality is, though, we, we you can't give a true assessment because there's one and potentially two big games still in front of him. And and as much as you shouldn't base everything off that, I think he can really bolster his draft stock if he goes out and is the best player on the field over the course of potentially the next two games. And if he doesn't, uh, then maybe that makes it easier for him too. But uh, I don't know what's what's in Quinn Ewer's heart. I don't know what his aspirations are with the NFL draft, but I would ask him those questions. And then once I get all the information – I'd be able to give him, you know, my recommendation. But I, I do know this. I did see that Arch Manning said that regardless of what happens, he's coming back. So yeah, you've whether he stays or he goes, you've got a pretty good another option behind him. And don't even get me started on Malik Murphy. I don't even know where that leaves him in this entire conversation. Sark's got a no, very gone. good problem on his hands right now with a loaded quarterback room. Malik
0: was my son, he'd be gone after this season. He's got a He's never going to be the guy here. He's not. Yeah, but he you can be out somewhere. You don't know. Yes, I do. Uh, it, and, not it, Arch Manning. It's like Michael Jackson walked out onto the middle of the field when he came out there. And the roar of that crowd against it was Texas is crazy. It was. Nuts. Low
1: I was like, <laughs> oh, like
0: you know. It, and, and Dust, we're 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 you know we're we're on a tight deadline, so we're writing our columns. And we have no idea what just happened because that game is over. And I go, what the heck? what happened? And I, and, and Kroger 16's out there. I said, Oh my God, it's like a rock star. So mm-hmm. and they don't do that for Malik because Malik came out before Arch did. And, and it wasn't a roar. They love Arch. They love him. And you, sometimes you got to listen to the crowd. You got to listen to the crowd. So Malik, I think will be gone.
2: You know, know what's that. interesting, guys, too, and I wrote about this week, is that if Quinn stock goes through the roof, you know, kind of like Vince in 2005, and it's like, okay, now you're a first-rounder. You weren't a month ago, but now you are. Then he goes, then maybe, Malik, oh, maybe I'll stick around a little bit. But you know how the portal is now, Dusty? It's like, grab them, grab them. You know, it's like the, the guys that, uh, you know, just uh, – what do they smash jewelry stores and just grab stuff? That's the way are with quarterbacks right now. So oh, it's
1: it's wild. He's got
2: tough decisions, he got tough decision. Malik does.
1: He does. Um, and I, I think it'd be interesting. I'll tell you this: Sark's a he's a pretty persuasive cat now. Yes, I mean he is. He, he's impressive. He's persuasive. He can he can sell something. I think he already has. It's why Malik Murphy didn't leave last year. You know. Yeah he's dealt with this at USC with a loaded quarterback room at Alabama with a loaded yep. quarterback room. If there's anybody that knows how to navigate, you know, this situation, I'd say it's him. But if I'm, I wonder does Malik, let's say Quinn does go, let's say that stock elevates and he gets back. He's going to be a top 10 to 15 pick. And they, they, they win a national championship and the other factor too, you know, is Xavier worthy. And I know it said, you said to me on our show earlier this week, you think Worthy's out? You think JT's out? You think Adnan Mitchell's out? Yeah. How much does that potentially influence? You know, if 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 Quinn's got his stock as high as it's going to get, and those guys aren't coming back, does that change or influence? You know, his decision as well. But it, say he goes, does Malik come back and compete in the spring to see what that looks like? You know, because because there's there's two periods that you can transfer. It's not yeah. just one or right. Malik Murphy. Are you just saying, you know what? Like said saying, I heard that roar. I know what's coming, and I'd rather get somewhere, establish myself, have an entire spring with that offensive staff, you know, get get integrated with my teammates so that next fall I can give myself the best possible opportunity to have success. These are the tough questions that him and his family are going to have to parse through here over the coming weeks. And if
0: a guy and if a school comes at you in the portal, and they're going to pay you. And Matt Rule said it's going to cost one to two million dollars. That means they want you, so they're not paying you to come sit. There's a there's a there's a there's a a, a specter of uncertainty if he comes back to Texas. But if he goes in that portal, someone's going to swoop him up, and he's probably going to
1: start. Sark told. I remember Sark told us a story about him. Uh, we did the BYU game, and, and he started. And I can't remember their high schools, but you know, whatever high school he went to. Um, he was telling us how Modern Day yes. had come after Malik, and yeah. that they tried to. It was after Bryce Young had left, and they tried to get Malik to come over to Modern Day. And he was talking about the loyalty of Malik Murphy, and and how and just kind of what he's about. And Malik didn't want to do that, and he and he stuck it out and he stayed in his high school and he helped lead him to a state championship, I believe. Yeah. If yeah. Yeah. Juniper, Juniper, and, and it's and it's part of why. Uh, I think that we saw Malik come back this year, right? Because I think that those opportunities after he lit it up in the spring game and just the size and the arm talent and everything that comes with Malik Murphy, it's very real. Uh and he and he stays there at Texas, knowing Quinn Ewers is there, knowing Arch Manning assigned. He did it this past year. Would he do it again? I I think it's a I think it's a real question. If if I had to lean, I know I don't know if Sark watches y'all's. Podcast or not, I don't think he want me to say well, it. He, he it. does he not. So, I would lean no. towards what said says, but I I have I yeah. have no idea, and that's clearly speculation. I know this. He he's got the respect of his teammates, man. That that's team right. that Ooh. team likes him a, lot, a lot. he puts in the work. Um, he, that locker room is behind him. Uh, yeah. I also think the same with Arch, though. Yes. Like we got some anecdotes from. I think it was Johnny Barron, told us about Arch and and how he, uh you know, begged him to let him carry his his pads uh, off the field. And, you know, Jada, he's like, no, man, yeah, you don't have to do that. And it's like, you know, Arch, even though he's a man and you never know it, you know, he's he's very side deprecating. He, he doesn't think that he's arrived. He doesn't use that to act as if he's better than somebody. I think he's extremely humble for a guy that if there's anyone that wouldn't have to be humble, it's him and he's, But he is, and so I think both of these guys are exactly what you want as a starting quarterback. And both these guys, uh, they've got the uh, the full support of their teammates. So I think that that's it's another thing just about that that quarterback room and what Sark's done with it, man. It's a it's a really impressive group, and and Quinn Ewers too. Like I think he's grown up so much from where he was a year ago, which he's admitted. Like I'm not this is like some revelation, but I think he kind of took for granted what he had last year. And then, oh, yeah, I mean, Texas quarterback, of course, I'm supposed to get this. To where now I think he truly appreciated it, put in all the work. And I think that also uh, was, you know, reflected in, in how this team feels about him as well. So there's there's a ton of respect garnered by all three of those guys in that quarterback
2: room of this football team. Hey, real quickly before we let you go, Dylan Gabriel, why is he leaving? Is he going to Oregon? I don't know where he's going, uh, but
1: I would imagine – for a lot of the reasons we're talking about, I think that there's probably uh potential out there uh, for him to uh, maximize on yeah, a good sure. year. And and I don't know this. Look, I'm, I'm really close with a lot of the OU staff. I mean, I mean, I'm not, and coach Venables is my coordinator. I mean, I love the man. And, but I haven't reached out to him and asked him. So this is speculation on my part. I, I, just, I wonder if there was any kind of conversations about there would be a real competition. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you now, Jackson Arnold's a dude. I mean, Jackson, he's a guy. And I don't – I'm not saying Jackson would – has given them some ultimatum. I don't know. But I just wonder if there was conversations that potentially, you know, you come back in the spring, we're going to allow Jackson the chance to win this job. Uh, I also think, you know, Jeff Levy was a key piece of Dylan Gabriel coming there. You know, he recruited him to UCF. They're super close. They're very tight. And you remember, Dylan Gabriel was committed to UCLA. And then they hired Jeff Levy. And before he signed the paperwork, he decommitted and then moved on to Oklahoma. So I just think that with Jeff Levy getting that job at Mississippi State, kind of start fresh with Seth Luttrell and Joe John Finley, who I love that hire, by the way, from from, uh, Coach Venables, I I think there's a lot of things, the money aspect, I think it makes a lot of sense to – allow, you know, for him to go his own way and for the Jackson-Arnold era to begin uh, this bowl season in the Alamo bowl.
0: Well, Dusty, man, the knowledge drop was epic today. And I, I, I just can't wait to – Kirk doesn't listen to this podcast. He hits it, he'll hit it, and he'll quit it. But I, I heard listen it's good. to the podcast when, when – yeah, yeah, 320 episodes, he's never listened to one. But this is going to be a great listen for me going into the bowl game because you gave so much good information and man we appreciate it. You can't tell us what bowl game he's going to be at Doug, but I know it's going to be a big one because that's that that is the crew. That's a great crew. And um we appreciate you joining us man and uh what are you going to be doing over these holidays? Doug, shut up.
1: Man, I mean, I'm I'm be doing some radio and getting ready for bowl season. Trying to be dad. Yesterday, Yesterday I had so much time on my hands, I cleaned out my garage. I get wow. some fancy, Like That's much a hobby. I got so much satisfaction out of it. Like my my a bunch of my stuff has gone to heck in a handbasket during football because I'm so focused. I get some time. I looked at my garage yesterday. I was like, what has happened here? So two, two and a half hours later, I was like, now that is what yeah. a garage is supposed to look like. You know what this is, said this is what happens to football guys when there's no football.
2: We
0: clean joy. I'm right. leaving the country. Duck, real quick, what do you got?
2: I'll get to the garage in July. I was going to say, you, you've been wonderful, even though you're wrong on Florida State. Everything else you were great yeah. on. <laughs> we give you a 99, okay? So, oh, man, yeah. we appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Hopefully, we'll see you at Houston at the championship game.
1: Yes, sir. I'll be there. As a matter of fact, I'll be doing the, um, I'll be giving out the, um, uh, the Bear Bryant award in Houston two days after for the coach year. Who knows? Maybe, maybe, know, uh, maybe Sark will be there as well. Maybe you guys will be there covering it. So maybe I'll see you there too. Merry right, Christmas, brother. Take care. See you guys. Merry Christmas. See you, Dusty. On Second Thought,
0: Duck, uh, this is a special treat. Um, you know, every, every, um, uh, month we get together on a monday night with one of our buddies and he came up with the concept of sports night and hated it at first but love it now um (laughs) (laughs) michael mccambridge is the acclaimed author of the big time how the 1970s transformed sports in america great read i am um i haven't read all of it but i've been reading it um there won't be a quiz. It is. Uh, oh, there Kirk's is. with the visual. There uh, you go. Yeah, there you go. The big time.
2: I, I got an A in Show and Tell.
0: Oh <laughs> um, well, I knew you were a good student, Mike. What's up, man? Good to be with
2: you, gentlemen, again. How the heck are you, man? It's a Christmas season. You got a book to pedal. Life is good, right? Yes, I've been. Um,
3: I've been doing more podcasts than I knew there were podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> getting, you done
2: one in Alaska yet?
3: <laughs> I have not done one in Alaska, but I did a podcast about fatherhood, um, connected to the book somehow. That was a stretch. <laughs> I miss
2: uh, that chapter.
3: <laughs> I've done yes, I've done podcasts from coast to coast. So, but it's good to be with the uh, hometown heroes today.
2: Well, good to be with you. And this is a fascinating book. And I would say that even if Mac wasn't one of our best friends, uh, it's it's wouldn't. a it's a book about the sports in the seventies and, uh, not a whole lot happened in the seventies. I mean, (laughs) you know, here, I mean, you got the reserve clause being uh, challenged by Kurt flood. You got Monday night football exploding. You got Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs, you have racism, you have title nine. I mean, this book would just start out like a thousand pages. And don't forget,
0: (laughs) and don't forget, you know to keep this thing timely. Norman Lear just died. Yes, Norman Lear was the biggest TV producer. He changed television too in the yep. sure. So let's give a shout out to the old sage, Good Times, All in the Family, Jeffersons, Norman Lear as well. Moving on up. On? Yes, agreed, Kirk. To answer your question, yes, I'm sure
3: the original version. Um, I'm orig- I'm sure the original version was too long, um, and that's. I wish that I could write. To length, but I have to write poorly beyond length, and then and then cut it back and revise. Can't relate to that at all. (laughs) Can't relate to cutting back. Uh, I know that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but the thing that I think the thing that originally compelled me to your point, Kirk, was the '70s sort of has this. Let's be honest. This kind of subpar reputation. There was a there was a historian who wrote a history of the decade. And the title was "It seemed like nothing happened," um, and so that was that was kind of the rep for America as a whole. That it was more of a transitional decade between the unrest of the '60s and the Reagan Revolution of the '80s. But as you mentioned in sports, so much changed. And I remember distinctly that the place sports operated in the culture at the beginning of the decade which was really on the margins and sort of, you know, off to the side, the toy department, if you will, as, as newspapers referred to sports sections, it was in a completely different and more central role by the end of the decade. And that was the story I wanted to tell through this broad social history of all the things that changed
0: in sports over the 70s.
2: Yeah, I just my felt favorite, my favorite ahead, event,
0: event of the 70s happened, and I i didn't get to watch it live because I was like maybe four years old. The 1971 fight between George, uh, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, which you chronicled the fight of the century, of uh, some great documentaries on that fight, and what we, what I didn't know at the time uh, as a youngster was that boxing. Uh, when I was growing up, it was boxing, MLB, then NFL in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what social what social um, impact did that fight have in your you know in your review and in your interviews? Uh, how many people still look at that? As a pinnacle moment of the 70s, because that's back when boxing was running things in our country. I I think it was a it was highly
3: influential for a number of reasons. First of all, both Ali and Frazier got two and a half million dollars for that fight. This is in 1971, back when, as they say, two and a half million dollars was a lot of money. <laughs> I think that was that was kind of the clarion call that athletes generated a lot of revenue. And I am sure the athletes in the other sports took notice, but it was also, I mean, you think about it, think about that fight throughout boxing history, big fights, boxers in big fights wore trunks of three different colors, white, black, and blue. That was it. But this was the beginning of the seventies and everything was up for grabs. And Muhammad Ali shows up for this championship fight in red trunks with tassels, on the his tassels I love, I love
0: that. Those tassels, man.
3: <laughs> and Joe Frazier shows up in this like this combination of green and yellow that was inspired by Liberace's suits <laughs> on stage. And so it was even in the way it looked. It was different. And this was sort of fight that drew everybody in American popular culture. Frank Sinatra was a photographer for Life Magazine at that fight. And it was the sort of fight that who you were rooting for said something about more than your sports loyalties. It said something about how you felt about race, how you felt about the Vietnam War, how you felt about integration in the culture. Um, And so to that degree, it was one of the biggest events ever. In fact, I remember asking the great broadcaster, Bob Costas. Nice. All the events that he'd seen in his life, what was the one he was most excited about when it started? And he said it was the 71 Ali Frazier first fight. He was a college student at Syracuse and went to a movie theater in downtown Syracuse to watch the closed circuit fight. And um, by then already, the conventional wisdom about Ali was starting to change. The Vietnam War was unpopular Ali had become very, um, very popular on college campuses. And that fight, he said, most of the audience was was cheering for Ali. And down in Memphis that night, Elvis Presley was at the closed circuit broadcast with a big belt buckle valued at like $10,000. Everybody needed to see that fight.
2: What was that quote from uh, Ali? I didn't win the fight. Joe Frazier just quit first. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what your biggest event was in the 70s as far as influence and impact. To me, it was Kurt Flood challenging the reserve clause in baseball, which basically, meant if you're a baseball player, you were owned by that team for your career. And for a guy at 31 to, you know, refuse to agree to the trade to the Phillies in, in his career was mm-hmm. just so, so powerful and so courageous beyond anything I could imagine. And I love that quote from catcher, Tom Haller, who asked Kurt Flood, is this kind of a, about a black power thing? And and you quote Kurt Flood and says, no, we don't have any power. Wow. There's no power right here. So yeah. is that the biggest in your mind, Mike,
3: or is it another event? Well, it was certainly influential. It's, um, it's hard to, um, at least it's hard for me, to begin a book with a lawsuit, um, so I chose to begin a <laughs> book with uh, Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs in the Battle there you of
0: the Sox. But the end,
3: to, your, to your point about Flood, the thing that I was, I was sort of aware in different parts of my brain, that in addition to Flood challenging the reserve clause in baseball, John Mackey, the great Colts tight end, challenged the same rule essentially in football. And Oscar Robertson did the same thing in basketball. And it wasn't until I started working on this book that I was like, ah, in all three of the major sports, it was an African-American athlete willing to risk his career on this issue. And I remember talking to the great Steelers lineman, Joe Green, about this topic. And he said at that time, it seemed to him that black athletes were just more tuned in to the issues of fairness and freedom, and so it wasn't a coincidence that it was all African Americans. You think about it,
0: um, black black people had been fighting, uh, you know, for a full decade of the '60s, and this was nothing new to them. The Jim Brown, um, you know, Lou Elsinder, Kareem Del jabbar Bill Russell. You know, sitting in with Ali, um, those those things were already happening. And but I agree, man. The Billie Jean King win over Bobby Riggs at the Astrodome in 1973, the Battle of the Sexes, it changed the game forever. Now,
3: and just to, just to interrupt. The reason I started with it was not only because of how influential it was. But it was also, in a lot of ways, the quintessential 70s event, right? In retrospect, it seems absurd, but it was altogether necessary at the time. And it was a made-for-TV event, and it was schlocky, and Bobby Riggs went out, you know, with all of Bobby's bosom buddies, you know, (laughs) these girls in tight T-shirts, and Billie Jean was carried out by... Um, I think the members of the Rice University swim team, it just it just looks ridiculous. But it was, to your point, said, so important at the time. And I think a case can be made that no athlete, at least no American athlete, has ever come out onto a stage under more pressure than Billie Jean King was that night, because she knew if she lost to Bobby Riggs, it wasn't just that the rest of her career was going to be marked by that loss. She knew it would set the cause of women's sports back um, years, maybe decades. And if you go back and look at that, the broadcast of that match on YouTube, Billie Jean was locked in. She was in the zone. She was not joking. She was not smiling. She was not talking to Bobby Riggs. She was focused on the task at hand and performed marvelously. Yeah, she
2: was on a mission. There wasn't any yep. doubt about that. And along that lines, line, the whole, running throughout the book is just the theme of athletes asserting themselves and, you know, kind of demanding some, some power, if you will. You, you touch uh, on Title IX a lot. And Texas was an integral part of that as part of the lawsuit and part of that Amendment Act's uh Amendments of 1972. And you talked to Jody Conrad and Donna Lopiano. You know, this was back in the days when Jody was in high school and you're playing six on six, you know. You have an offensive side and a defensive side because it was just too strenuous for girls to play full court. Too strenuous. Three dribble limit, no coaching (laughs) from the sidelines.
3: It was – I can remember um, there was (laughs) – when the move was made in Texas to try to switch to the five-player game, right? One of the one of the bureaucrats um, overseeing high school sports in Texas said, "Well, well, no, we need we need six. So there's a so there's a place for the heavy-set girls."
2: Yeah, I love that <laughs> quote. Oh my god, talk about demeaning!
3: That was the mindset <laughs> at the time, and you know it, it was. One of the things that that struck me as i was as i was interviewing a lot of these women who were influential in the growth of sports in the 70s how everybody who had anything to do with basketball hated the six on six game hated the <laughs> capital A, hey, you know and and i can remember speaking to a, a woman at the university of iowa peg burke who said, you know there there was this sense that if women sweat too much or they ran the full length of the court, their uterus was going to fall out or something. That was that was kind of the the assumptions at the time. And so what we saw in the 70s, um, first of all, with the foundation of the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for women, was this governance organization what that was overseeing women's collegiate athletics was offering championships in seven events that was trying to go a different route than the NCAA, less recruiting heavy, less commercialization. And in some ways that, that might've been a little bit naive, but throughout the seventies, they built the infrastructure for women's college sports. And, you know, Kirk, you were here, you saw it at the University of Texas when Donna Lopiano showed up. It was clear <laughs> that there was there were a new set of rules in town. And a year later, she hires Jody Conrad. And it was I didn't know before I started working on this book that Jody was originally hired as the basketball and volleyball coach. Yes. Um, like Jody it. said she she accepted both jobs because she thought that would increase her chances of being successful. In at least one of them. Um <laughs> but there was a newspaper headline um, woman's coach hired with a man's salary yeah. you know because it was that? It was, was that a so, statesman headline um i'm not sure if it was statesman or might have been um
1: somewhere star like metroplex
3: <laughs> um but but and and how quickly things changed and how expertly donna and jody worked together to make women's basketball not just a preliminary game to the men's game, but its own thing, and its own Own event that that people showed up for, that people paid attention to. You got Ann Richards and Barbara Jordan sitting in the stands, and it was an event. And those sorts of little revolutions would soon take place across the country at Tennessee, and UCLA, and Cal State Fullerton, and eventually Connecticut,
0: and Rutgers, and places like that. But a lot of that started right here in Austin. You know, I grew up in the South, and so did the Duck. In 1974, Henry Aaron breaks Babe Ruth's record, and uh, that's one of the parts of the book that I remember, uh, because every television was tuned into that, and and many in America for all the wrong reasons. Um, you know, Henry Aaron. Uh, I was you know, blessed to to speak with him, uh, interview him uh, a few years before his death when he was here. Um, I think it was uh, 2014 with with his wife, Billy. Um, it, it 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 discussed it showed some racism and we knew that racism exists especially when as we were living in the seventies it was it was a lot more transparent uh, than it than it was in other decades um, following but what was that what was that like the journey for you um, encapsulating Aaron's chase of that record. And people always go, oh, my God, he suffered racism after he broke the record. Oh, no. While he was chasing it It was way worse.
3: I think that um, the lesson I got from that was it was a teaching moment for American sports fans, because I think the average American sports fan, the average day to day American sports fan liked Henry Aaron and was rooting for him. But Aaron's experience put this mirror up to the nation of sports fans and you saw that subset that subset of narrow minds and racist hate-based observers who felt as though they were diminished by the idea of a black man breaking what was then the most mythic record in american sports and i think that What emerges over the course of the early 70s as Aaron is chasing the record is not only his stoicism in the face of all that pressure, but his willingness without, you know, standing on a table and making a lot of speeches, his willingness to simply share the contents, (laughs) some of that hate mail, just to let people know what it was that he encountered on a daily basis And I think that um, I think that that was something that most American sports fans were not aware of and were shocked by. And so that was, I think, part of the education of the American sports fans to understand what a what a sensitive subject and what a third rail race was in American sports and by definition, American culture, because, you know, this was. You know, the people like Andrew Young and Vernon Jordan were dealing with the same things in American politics, but this was a much more public spectrum and much more public forum. And it was how people learned to understand uh, or understand better, at least the experience of race and the experience of um, African-American athletes throughout the country. And I
2: first, I, uh, my first knew- baseball bat was a maple colored Henry Aaron Batt. You know, I still right. remember that, that. he was just he just exuded class professionalism. You know, he was just the greatest. One other thing I wanted to ask you about before we wrap up is you mentioned there's so many things in this book. It, there's you got there's something that'll reach out to everybody. Like said was just talking, and you mentioned the Mike Renfro play in Pittsburgh <laughs> at Three Rivers. I was actually at that game. And uh, uh, where Houston orders threw the touchdown pass to Mike Renfro and he was ruled out of bounds. And that kind of triggered the debate over instant replay. And uh, and then the other item was we talked about the explosion of Monday night football that said, I'm sure you remember this too. Remember, that was the only place you could get halftime, half-time highlights. highlights
0: with Howard. Oh, man. Yeah.
2: It's like, oh, my, my, my
0: God. My parents would be saying, if you're going to stay up late, you need to take a, a shower at halftime. You know, take a bath at halftime. You got school tomorrow. And I was like, I'm taking I'm taking a bath at six thirty because I ain't missing the highlights. <laughs> it was it was big for
3: everybody, not just fans. Um, John Madden was coaching the Raiders then. mm mm-hmm. He had an assistant who would alert him when it was halftime of the Monday night football game because they're busy doing game plans for the next week. Right. That was when they would take their quote lunch break. At halftime of the Monday night football game, Madden and his staff and they would sit because it was, you know, it was their chance to see to see footage of other yeah. games, which to your point, Kirk, just wasn't available. You Normally you had to wait till later in the week for this week in the NFL or or something like that. And, you know, to that same point, one of the things that people from this generation cannot begin to comprehend Is a Saturday in the fall, and there was one college football game on TV. (laughs) That's what you get. Doesn't matter what's going on, MLB
0: and two MLB games. Yeah,
3: Colorado, Oklahoma, whether you like it or not, whether there's a bigger (laughs) game going on elsewhere, that's what you got.
2: Hey, I loved it. A stat, Cedric, in 2020, there were more college football games on TV in one day than an entire season in the 70s. Is that incredible? I mean, you think uh, of where we've come and, you know, its I don't know, Mac, you just hit it out of the park. It's such a a rich tapestry. There's so many details and colorful anecdotes that, you know, it'd make a perfect Christmas gift. Uh, Could you tell our uh, viewers how they might come across your book?
3: Um, They could find it anywhere books are sold. Um, There's not as many places that books are sold these days. (laughs) Book people. (laughs) You could find it at Book People. You could find it online. Um, and if you want a signed or personalized signed copy, you can um, order one at uh, my website, uh, michaelmccambridge.com.
2: There it is, for folks. So rush out and get it. It's the perfect stocking stuffer if you have a big stocking. I was going like you
0: got to have a big-ass big stocking. <laughs>
2: Man, a pleasure, and uh, we'll see you on Sports Night very soon. Uh, Thanks for sharing with us.
0: Thanks for the time, guys. See you on Sports Night. All right, brother. Take care. Great stuff on the podcast this week. All over the Sugar Bowl with ESPN's Dusty Dvorak. A great conversation with Michael McCambridge. Check out his book, The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports. In America, we're going to take a couple of weeks hiatus uh, to get get through these holidays, Uh, but we're going to be back on game week of the Sugar Bowl, uh, live from New Orleans. Going to be raucous. Can't wait. Hope you're going. That's going to do it for episode 319 of On Second Thought. For Kirk Bowles, I'm Sed Golden. Happy holidays, my friends. You've been listening to On Second Thought powered by hook'em.com. Join Seth and Kirk every Thursday at lunch for a new episode. Archived episodes are available on iTunes and Google Android Play.